What's it really like to follow Jesus in the Middle East? What kind of pressure do believers there face? Well, Todd Nettleton has just returned from the Middle East, and he spent time with believers who have stories to tell. Some of those stories may shock you. Others will encourage you. But you'll hear them all exclusively here. Welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Gaker with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler. Good to connect with you, Charlie. John, it's always great being with you. We'll start out with a question, and that is this. What does God really care about? Now, obviously, if you were to list it all out, it would be a long list. But there is one thing that we often forget that he cares about, and that's the Jewish people. We see throughout Scripture that he cares deeply about their physical preservation and their eternal salvation. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month, they're offering for you a special ebook titled Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture and prepare you so that you too can reach our Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. To receive this 30-day devotional, visit lifeandmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up today to receive your free gift. That said, let's jump into today's look at current events, stories unfolding all week long in the Middle East. Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, begins this coming week, but between the High Holy Days, Israel's upcoming elections, and the ongoing tension between Israel and her neighbors, we've not been able to focus as much on some of the other newsworthy items coming out of the country. So today, we're going to kind of shift gears to focus on stories from archaeology and technology. And story number one is a modern investigation into a 3,000-year-old mystery. What caused the collapse of King Solomon's copper mines at Timnah? I'm intrigued, Charlie. Yeah, and Timnah, for those who don't know, is there are two in Israel. This one is the one in the far south of Israel, just north of the city of Elat. The copper mines there were originally developed by Egypt and then later taken over by the Edomites. But when David captured the territory of Edom, and then Solomon, of course, took over his kingdom from his father, they ended up controlling these copper mines. And the mines are often called King Solomon's copper mines because of the tremendous amount of copper extracted there and used by Solomon in the construction of the temple. So what caused the industry there to collapse? Sadly, it was the cutting down of the trees and plants to produce charcoal for smelting that caused this irreversible ecological damage Uh, The region's very sparse and dry. Anybody who's been there knows that. But it did have acacia trees and broom trees growing there. Well, their wood was harvested and converted into charcoal to smelt the ore. After each smelting, the earthenware furnace is destroyed to extract the copper, and then another would be built. And the debris from the first furnace was then just dumped onto a slag mound, which then left a chronological record. The archaeologists excavated the layers of slag, and discovered the earliest charcoal was made from the hard, dense wood of the acacia and broom trees. However, as these plants were used up, the workers had to expand the hunt for fuel over an ever-widening area, and they started using less suitable wood like date palms and junipers. Archaeologists believe the time and expense required to transport fuel is what led to the collapse of the whole industry, and sadly it changed the region's ecosystem as well. 3,000 years later, there's still a dearth of acacia trees and broom trees in that region. The loss of those trees changed the climate in a way that made it difficult for the species to return. The copper ore is still there, but the fuel to smelt it was gone. 
Charlie, uh, I ask, why don't they replant some trees then? Well, and again, the uh, the entire climate changed so that now it doesn't support the trees the way it used to. Uh, it needs water. The Those trees have very deep roots, but they still need water to have the roots go down. And evidently, when the ecosystem changed, the water supply just wasn't there to restore them. Hmm. An extremely rare piece of First Temple-era papyrus was discovered in, of all places, get this now, folks, Montana. How did this fragment, Charlie, of 2,700-year-old paper make its way to the States? And what could we possibly learn from this tiny piece of history? Yeah, you know, finding a piece of 2,700-year-old papyrus is amazing, and so was its discovery in Montana. Uh, This piece is tiny. It's only about an inch and a half by two inches in size. And it contains parts of four lines of text. Now, first, how did it get to Montana? Well, back in 1965, a Christian group was helping with excavations around Qumran, which at that time belonged to Jordan. They also met some of the prominent people involved in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the dealers either gave or more likely sold this small fragment to a woman who brought it home, mounted it, and hung it on the wall of her home in Montana. Well, four years ago, an Israeli professor was completing a book on First Temple-era scripts, and he heard about this piece in Montana. He contacted the son of the original owner, who then brought the piece to Israel and donated it to the Israeli Antiquities Authority. Now, as to what's on the piece, it was written to someone named Ishmael, not Abraham's son, with a list of items the writer wanted him to send and not to send. The style of the writing dates the piece to the 7th or 6th centuries B.C., which is very close to the time of Judah's fall to Babylon. And it appears to have been written in haste. Uh, the, the letters are very carelessly formed. But what it says isn't that significant. However, the fact that a piece of papyrus containing Hebrew writing could still survive for 2,700 years, well, that is significant. Hmm. Certainly the fact that it was on dry desert climate around Qumran, uh, that helped preserve it initially. And then this dear lady in Montana kept it safe for another half century until it finally returned home. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with a special focus during our current event segments on archaeological discoveries and technological things worth knowing about. Well, an Israeli startup has developed technology using artificial intelligence that can conduct a full molecular analysis on a digitized biopsy image in minutes rather than taking a few weeks. How does this new technology from Imogene work? Well, the Israeli startup is using artificial intelligence to rapidly diagnose cancer cells in biopsies. Uh, The founder's interest in the project came when his mother was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer. That's when he discovered the frustrating gaps in time between having a biopsy and receiving the results, and the impact that time lag can have actually on treatment. Their technology uses artificial intelligence to search the image to determine if a tumor is cancerous or not, and if it is, What are the biomarkers? The program's designed to fit into a pathologist's current workflow. It prepares a report summarizing the findings and pointing out actionable biomarkers, including those that match targeted therapies and relevant clinical trials. Right now, the companies develop models that can check for 28 biomarkers in eight organs, including lungs, thyroid, breasts, and ovaries, and more are on the way. Today, only about 15% of patients can be diagnosed with a biomarker that can lead to a precise medical therapy. Their goal is to push the boundaries of precision medicine to make it more accessible. The system doesn't yet have regulatory clearance, but they hope that within five years, patients will be able to receive a comprehensive diagnosis at the point of care 
and then be able to discuss immediate treatment options or clinical trials. Hmm. That approval can't come soon enough for those who will soon hear those frightening words, you have cancer. For sure. Imagine a blood test that could detect pancreatic and colorectal cancers. Scientists at the Weizmann Institute of Science believe they have developed just such a test. What makes this discovery so significant? Well, today, pancreatic cancer can't be identified by any single diagnostic test. By the time it's discovered, it's usually already metastasized. And screening colorectal cancer involves a more invasive colonoscopy, which, sadly, many people just refuse to undergo. This new test uses special technology to image a single molecule from a blood sample. In a peer-reviewed paper, the tests were shown to achieve 92% accuracy in detecting cancer. Their next step is to have the test confirmed through clinical trials, and they hope to begin carrying out those trials for both pancreatic and colorectal cancer in the not-too-distant future. They believe the process can also be used to test for other cancers and additional diseases that leave traces in the blood. John, someday a small portion of that blood test taken by your doctor Mm -hmm. will be used to test for both pancreatic and colorectal cancer, allowing for earlier diagnosis and treatment should it be present. And that would definitely be worth a drop of someone's blood. Yeah, boy, that's an encouraging story. And we have time for one more. So tell us about the high-tech drone system being developed that could replace cowboys. This system is developed by a company called B-Free Agro. It's B-E-E-F-R-E-E Agro. The developers, who are ranchers themselves, call it the world's first click-and-herd solution. (laughs) It uses high-tech drones to work alongside ranchers to make them more effective. The system's called Joe, after a shepherd dog that inspired the idea for these guys. After calculating a route, Joe flies off into the field to locate the cattle and send back a detailed report to the rancher, providing him with the location and health status of the animals. It can also report on the condition of the field, sending back video of any breaches in the fence, empty water troughs, a calving cow, or any intruders. Joe rides the ranger, or perhaps flies the range, letting the rancher know what he or she might need. Uh, The system can even be used to help herd the animals, using the movement and the added sound of a barking dog to get those doggies moving in the right direction. Hmm. Now, it'll never replace the singing cowboy, but Joe could someday become an essential fixture on a farm or a ranch near you. Well, seldom has heard a discouraging word here at The Land and the Book. In fact, we've got an interesting take on Middle East persecution coming up in a conversation with Todd Nettleton. Plus, Charlie will return to answer your questions, share a devotional with us, and more on today's edition of The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Stick around, won't you? If you lived in the Middle East and decided one day to follow Jesus, how would your life be different? The answer in two words, very different. You would face opposition at best and persecution or even death at the worst. You're about to meet some real people who have faced real opposition for the faith. Welcome to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, promising an hour packed with stories and hope and help and inspiration. We've already enjoyed our look at current events, but now this conversation with somebody who's been there and comes back with some fresh stories. Before we get to those stories, how about a fresh look at ways that you and I can reach out with the love of Christ to our Muslim friends? As Christ followers, you and I use theological and biblical words that are often new to Muslims. Some words hold such a different meaning in the Muslim culture, we might just need to do a better job explaining them. 
Let's get some help from Samia Johnson with Call of Love Ministries. She's written The Guide to Loving Your Muslim Neighbors. One example of a word that we need to clarify would be what? Would be faith. Faith itself. So if uh, you ask a Muslim, what do you believe in or what's your faith? For them, faith is the practices. So what do you practice? It's all about works. My faith includes praying five times a day, fasting, giving alms, uh, going to pilgrimage, saying the Shahada, which is, you know, the creed, the confession. So when it comes to faith, we need to explain to them, this is a spiritual conversation or a trust in Jesus Christ and his word for my eternal salvation and my everyday needs. And it results in his becoming the leader and king of my life. We need to help them differentiate between faith as a relationship between my creator and and me, Mm -hmm. and faith as a practice, the one that they do. More of these Christian words to clarify in the book, The Guide to Loving Your Muslim Neighbors. You'll find more information at calloflove.org. Todd Nettleton is Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for The Voice of the Martyrs, and he hosts The Voice of the Martyrs radio program. Todd serves as a voice for persecuted Christians through writing, speaking, and working with the media to tell people in the United States about the faithfulness of Christ's followers in more than 70 nations where they face persecution. Did you catch that? More than 70 nations. Wow. Todd's newest book, When Faith is Forbidden, was published by Moody Publishers back in 2021. In his more than two decades of service with Voice of the Martyrs, Todd has traveled to more than 20 nations to interview hundreds of Christians who have endured persecution. Uh, He's been interviewed more than 3,000 times by media outlets, including CNN, the Associated Press, Los Angeles Times, the BBC, and the Voice of America. So thanks for being willing to share some fresh stories with us, Todd. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Well, a few months back, you returned from a trip to the Middle East. What was the purpose of that visit? Well, the visit was to meet with Christians in Israel, to hear their stories, and uh, it was also kind of a dual purpose. I I took my wife along, and we celebrated our 30th anniversary in Jerusalem. Um, So it was a kind of a dual purpose work and uh, blessing trip. Yeah. Well, you've got lots of stories, and we want to fit in as many as we can today. Let's start with the lady in the Palestinian area doing ministry and the opposition she experienced. Give us the whole picture. We had the chance to meet a lady in the Palestinian-controlled areas uh, outside of Jerusalem, and uh, she is doing ministry to Muslim women. And she had some amazing stories of the people that she's reached. Uh, One of my favorites, we actually met one of the ladies that she has ministered to and led to Christ. Uh, And this lady said, you know, when I first started coming here, uh, my husband said, don't go there. I don't want you to be over there. I don't want you to be around that Christian woman. But she said, as as I began to hear the gospel and as I began to follow Christ, my husband saw a change in me <laughs> and he liked it. He liked the change that he saw in me. And so he said, okay, it's okay if you go and see that Christian woman, but let's not tell anyone that you're going to see her. We'll, <laughs> we'll keep it a secret. So I, I thought that was very fascinating that, you know, as a good upstanding Muslim man, he didn't want his wife to be around Christians, but then he saw, wait a minute, I like my wife better after she's been around the Christians. Well, so, okay, you can go, but let's keep it a secret. But uh, this brave, bold Christian woman is doing that kind of outreach every day. And it is 
it is difficult. She knows that the family members of the people she's ministering to, the husbands, uh, the sons, they don't want their wife, they don't want their mother to be exposed to the gospel, to be exposed to Christian teaching. Uh, and yet she continues to do it day by day by day, building those relationships and using them to plant the seeds of the gospel. Now, in the course of your conversation, did she happen to mention uh, any opposition that would be just a bit more bristly than uh, what you just shared with us? Well, she definitely has been threatened. Uh, in fact, she's been threatened repeatedly. And and it, you know, it, it's interesting when you sit down with someone like that. It, they don't consider it that sort of out of the normal. Um, she just understands that, of course, when you follow Christ in a Muslim area, of course, you're going to face opposition. That's just sort of part of it. And so, you know, as we kind of asked questions and said, you know, well, how, you know, tell us about the threats. Tell us, did that scare you? Were you upset about that? Uh, for her, it was kind of like, you know, why are we talking so much about this? This is just normal life. I, I don't understand what, you know, why it's so interesting to you. And, and that really is the reality. So she has faced threats. Uh, she knows there are people who don't want her to continue in ministry. Uh, and there are times when she kind of retreats a little bit for a time of refreshment, for a time of kind of rejuvenation. But it is dangerous work, but she is not intimidated in the slightest. In his more than two decades of service with Voice of the Martyrs, Todd Nettleton has traveled to more than 20 nations to interview hundreds of Christians who have endured persecution. It's a pleasure to visit with him again on The Land and the Book. He's just back from a trip to the Middle East. And, of course, the Middle East, Todd, is home to a religious group known as the Druze. Their religion is something of a mix of Islam, Hinduism, and even classical Greek philosophy. Uh, they make up uh, roughly 2% of the country's population and mostly live in the northern regions of the Galilee, Carmel, and uh, the Golan Heights. But you've got a story about a guy who was doing some kind of ministry with the Druze. Who was this guy? What happened? This man was really amazing. His name is Hael, and he is a former Druze. He grew up in a Druze family. As you mentioned, there are Druze in northern Israel, in Lebanon, in Syria. Uh, but he came to faith in Christ. He is actually was out of that area. He was in Africa uh, living for a while. Someone gave him a Bible, and uh, he began to read. And he said, Jesus is the truth. I'm going to follow him. Now, he knew, and it is still common today, out of that Druze background, if you become a follower of Christ, you are ostracized and, you know, kicked out of your family, kicked out of your opportunities, maybe lose your job. We in the West don't understand the importance in that part of the world of your family, of mm -hmm. your tribe, of your people. That's the key to everything. That's the key to your education. That's the key to your job opportunities. And so in that community, when you are cut off, it closes off all those opportunities. And he has experienced that. He has experienced that lack of opportunity, that lack of support. In fact, not very long ago, he had to move to a different town because he was so isolated and so cut off in the town where he's at. Here's the interesting thing, though, about Hael. He is not being quiet about his faith in Christ. In fact, he is making online videos for Druze people to see the gospel. And so if a Druze person is curious, those videos are there for them to find. Hey, what does the Bible say about this? Hey, who was Jesus? What, what is it mm -hmm. the Bible teach about Jesus? 
And he said, the amazing thing is there are a lot of Druze who have those questions. And because these videos are available online, they can watch them on their phone. They can watch them in secret, in private. Uh, they don't have to go out somewhere publicly and, and kind of show that they're asking these questions. Uh, and they have had a phenomenal impact and heard from Druze in all of those countries uh, and even Druze in other parts of the world that have watched the videos. They've also heard the other side of the story. Uh, one of the people that was involved in making the videos after just a week had been threatened and told, don't be a part of those videos any longer. So hmm. you know it's being impactful when Satan is so quick to attack what they're doing. Okay, you mentioned the Bible, and the Bible Society is hard at work creating translations for Israelis, but some listeners might be scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. How could there be trouble understanding that? What do we need to know, Todd? Well, that was a question I asked too. It's like, wait a minute, if, if it's in Hebrew and they speak Hebrew, why, why would there be any problem? And, and the leader of the Bible Society that we met reminded me, you know, this is Hebrew that was 2,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, languages have a way of changing over time. And, and I thought of, you know, I don't read the Bible in the King James Version, which is only 400 years old, yeah. uh, because some of those words are like, wow, what, what does they mean by that? We don't use that word that way anymore. He said, the same is true in Hebrew, and it's not just 400 years, it's 2,000 years. So they are doing a couple different things at the Bible Society to make the Bible available to Israelis, to Hebrew speakers. One of the things they're doing is they're printing the original Hebrew, but then they have all kinds of notes to explain the words and explain the way the language has changed over time. And he, he showed me some pages where the text of the scripture was part of the page, but actually more than half the page was their notes trying to explain, hey, this is what this means. This is what they're trying to say here. The other thing they're doing is they are working on a more modern translation of the Old Testament into Hebrew um, so that Hebrew speakers have a version like many of us read that, that is written you know, recently and uses the Hebrew language the same way people use it today. So lots of different things. And again, Lots of curiosity, lots of openness among Israelis who, who want to know what the Bible says. They want to understand mm -hmm. it. They want it in a language they can understand. But also, you know, some unhappy people, too, who, who don't want Christianity to make progress and to enter into the hearts of the people. As the son of missionary parents, Todd Nettleton spent part of his youth in Papua New Guinea and the rest in Southern California. He serves with Voice of the Martyrs and joins us today on The Land and the Book. Well, while in Israel, you had a conversation with a woman named Pauline, whose husband was martyred in Gaza. Tell us this story. Rami Ayad was killed. He was kidnapped first. His body was found the next day. It's actually this year marks 15 years. So it's 15 years ago. He was a leader in the Bible Society in Gaza. And uh, it, it was interesting. He had only been at the Bible Society for a couple of years when he was killed. Before that, he was a banker. <laughs> he had a, you know, a, a good job in a bank there. And one of the questions I asked Pauline is, you know, how did you feel when your husband came and talked to you about you know, leaving his good, safe job in the bank to go work at the Bible Society, which you knew was dangerous. You mm -hmm. knew that was risky. Uh, and she talked about the fact that at first she was like, I'm not sure we want to do this. You know, yeah. well, we could volunteer part-time at the Bible Society. How about we keep our, our good job? <laughs> but they really made that decision to step out in faith. And uh, then Rami was threatened. Then he was kidnapped. Uh, then he was killed. His body was found. And 
Pauline talked about the process of forgiveness, and I think this was the most, maybe the most powerful conversation we had on the whole trip because wow. she said it took her five years to get to the point of forgiveness. And in fact, one of the men who was involved in the murder was actually caught and tried and, and executed. The night before he was executed for the crime, she posted on Facebook a message of forgiveness to him and very publicly, hey, I know this person is going to be executed tomorrow. I forgive him. And she said even some of her family, some of Rami's family was very upset at the time about that. Like, hmm. no, you cannot do that. You cannot say that publicly. This man killed Rami. But she said in the, in the time since then, even his family has said that was the right thing to do. Wow. They have been blessed and she has been blessed. And hundreds of thousands of people have read that Facebook post and seen that message of forgiveness. And she has had the opportunity in the last 10 years to speak all over the world, to share that story and to be an example of forgiveness. And again, not easy forgiveness, but forgiveness that God really worked on her heart and God empowered her to do. And she said, I could not have done this on my own. Mm. God is the one who allowed me to be able to do this. And I thought, what a great message for us, because, you know, all of us have been wronged by someone. All of us have issues we need to forgive. And, and it was really encouraging to hear yes. her story that, yes, it took a long time, but God gave me the strength. God gave me the power to be able to forgive. That's Todd Nettleton, Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for The Voice of the Martyrs. Boy, is he a storyteller. And you'll find so many more of them in their monthly newsletter. You'll also find encouragement in the app that I use, perfect for your Android phone or iPhone. It's called Pray, Pray Today. And it lets you pray for a different country every day facing persecution. That's free, by the way. There's a link to Voice of the Martyrs at our website, thelandandthebook.org. And we definitely encourage you to check that out. Todd, thank you for the conversation. It has been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And Charlie Dyer's back on the next segment with more of your questions here on The Land and the Book. It's inevitable you open the Bible or you open the newspaper, you open a web page. And as it connects to your understanding of Scripture, a question comes to mind. What do you do with those questions? Well, you could address them to Charlie Dyer, our host here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back, by the way, to Segment 3. I'm John Geiger, and for the next few minutes, we're going to do nothing but address questions that have come to your mind. And if you've got one you'd like to share with us, it's always welcome. I'll share our email address later on. First, though, this thought, what does God really care about? Obviously, if you were to list it all out, it would be a long list. But there is one thing we often forget he cares about, the Jewish people. And we see throughout Scripture that he cares deeply about their physical preservation and their eternal salvation. Yeah, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah have spent 135 years sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, both by proclaiming the gospel to them and by equipping others to do the same. This month, they're offering you a special ebook entitled Sharing God's Heart. This 30-day devotional will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture and prepare you so that you too can reach our Jewish friends with the gospel they so desperately need. Now, to receive this 30-day devotional, visit lifeandmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up today to receive your free gift. 
And Mary is our first question of the day, our first questioner. Maybe that's better grammar. She says, Jesus was not omnipresent, was he? Or is the fact that Jesus is part of the Godhead and not the only member of the Godhead take care of that? Thank you for your help. Well, as God, Jesus did possess the attributes of omniscience and omnipresence. I actually see that revealed in John 1, 48. There, Jesus met Nathanael and called him an Israelite in whom was no guile. Nathanael then asked Jesus how he knew him. And Jesus responded, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, this suggests to me that Jesus knew Nathanael's character. That is, he had omniscience. He knew all about him. And visibly, he saw Nathanael when he was physically at another location, meaning Jesus had that omnipresence, uh, those characteristics of God, because he was God. Here's a question from Sharon. She says, I'm teaching Daniel and studying chapter 9. I noticed in verses 7 and 8 that the word shame is used. What is the difference between shame and guilt? Yeah, guilt and shame are are closely related. Now, here's my understanding. Uh, uh, Guilt relates to the reality we've done something wrong. Shame is the emotion that follows, which causes us to feel unworthy because of what we've done. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve felt guilt. When their eyes were opened, they realized they were naked because of their disobedience, and that caused them to try and find a way to cover their nakedness by sewing together fig leaves. Shame is what they felt when God came into the garden in the evening and what caused them to try to hide from God. In Isaiah 54, shame is used in parallel with a number of words, humiliated, disgraced, reproach. Guilt's the realization, again, we've done something wrong, and shame is that reproach that follows, and it makes us feel so unworthy. Mary says, why are all humans born with original sin when it was Adam and Eve that disobeyed God? Obviously, we were not there, so why are all humans guilty of someone else's sin? Yeah, and there's a a large theological issue on this, and I can't get into all the details. So let me give one analogy here that I think might help answer this question. Uh, When we think of DNA, and uh, that's what I'd like you to think of, uh, when when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, their fundamental nature changed, and that change was then passed on to all their offspring. Uh, Their spiritual DNA, so to speak, was altered because of their sin. Spiritually, God said the day they ate of the tree, they would die. Now, that had to refer to more than just physical death because they didn't die physically the day they ate that fruit, but they did die spiritually. And that spiritual death or separation from God became part of their fundamental being at that moment. And their physical offspring then inherited that characteristic or trait, you know, just like skin or eye or hair color are inherited traits. So spiritual death became an inherited trait shared by every single offspring. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and your questions are in the spotlight. Here's one. Buddhism seems to be similar to Christianity. They strive for peace, kindness, and purging oneself of pride, selfishness, etc. But Christians have God's Son, Jesus, who paid for our sins on the cross. So a holy God can accept us into heaven. Now, here's the question from this listener. Does God perhaps have an excess of pride in that he wants or needs praise constantly through eternity? Well, the biggest difference I see between Buddhism and Christianity is that Buddhism rejects the idea of a creator God and a divine savior. Uh, They also don't believe in sin or in heaven or hell in the biblical sense. Uh, Their ultimate goal is nirvana, which is in essence a loss of individual consciousness. So it seems to me it's a passive approach to life that doesn't ring true with the intellect, emotion, and will uh, that God built into humanity. 
Now, in terms of that second part in the question, I, I don't believe God is prideful in the sense that we understand pride. From eternity past, God had perfect fellowship within the Trinity. He didn't need to create humanity to gain praise or to receive satisfaction. And while believers will praise God for eternity, much of the reason is because of what God has done for us. You know, Jesus humbled himself to pay the penalty for all our sin, to bridge that gap between earth and heaven. And I believe when we understand who God is in all his perfection and come to appreciate fully what he's done for us, our praise won't be given to satisfy some prideful desire on God's part, but because of a humble sense of thanksgiving on our part. Kem writes, a godly elderly lady who I've known for many years recently experienced the death of her adult son and daughter. She has the assurance that her son was a Christian. However, she does not have that same comfort when she thinks of her daughter. My understanding is that she was brought up in the church and heard the truth of the gospel. How would you advise that I share with her and help her shoulder this burden? Yeah, and in those kind of cases, I think we have to avoid two extremes. We need to make sure we don't offer comfort by assuring her her daughter's in heaven because we don't know that. But at the same time, I think we need to make sure we don't try to minimize her concern by saying, well, you know, it's too late to worry about that. Your daughter's already dead. You know, neither approach in that sense would be helpful. Instead, here's what I'd suggest. Help try and turn her thoughts to God and his justice and his righteousness and his mercy. You can suggest that, you know, something like, uh, well, only God really knows what's happening inside a person's heart and he'll ultimately do what's right and just. Abraham said it best in, in Genesis 18. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Uh, the burden this dear lady's trying to carry in this matter is just, it's too much for her. Peter offered a wise piece of advice. He said, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you, First uh, Peter 5, 7. So what I would suggest is this, encourage her to write her daughter's name on a slip of paper and then go to the Lord and share with him her concern about her daughter's eternal destiny. Uh, but then once she's unburdened her heart to the Lord, ask her to fold up that piece of paper and slip it into her Bible in First Peter 5. Hmm. Have her keep it there as a physical reminder that she's cast her anxiety regarding her daughter on him because he cares for her. And should the anxious thoughts return, uh, that will remind her to go back to that passage and see that slip of paper and remember what God has promised. Well, that is so practical, Charlie. That's excellent. Thank you. All right, here's an interesting question. After a recent Sunday school lesson from Matthew 8, I found myself curious about the construction of boats in Jesus' time. Is there any clue for us today about the size of the boat referenced in this passage? I'm trying to picture how Jesus, as tired as he was, could sleep in a fishing boat, especially if it weren't rather sizable because of the raging storm. Well, I think we can provide a pretty decent answer on this because a fishing boat from the first century was uncovered alongside the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the boat was excavated and restored, and it's actually on display at uh, Nafginasar right beside the sea. Now, that boat was 27 feet long and just over seven feet wide. And when you stand and look at it, you realize how dangerous it would have been to be out on the Sea of Galilee in a storm in such a small vessel. Now, I believe the one reason Jesus could sleep through such a storm with waves breaking over the bow was the fact that in his humanity, he was physically exhausted. Matthew 8 and Mark 4 describe the events that took place in Capernaum just prior to the storm. Jesus spent a day in a whirlwind of activity, healing many, teaching large crowds. And once the boat pushed away and headed to the other side, I think he fell into just a deep sleep. Uh, to me, it's a great illustration of the reality that he was fully human. 
And then when he was awakened, he displayed the reality that he's also fully divine by calming the wind and the waves. All right, we got time for one more question. This one from Jennifer and John. Is the Vatican City in Rome named after an underworld goddess? We read an article that suggested this to be the case. Well, you sent me the article. I read it, and I have some serious questions about it. I think the last paragraph said it all. It said, it's hard to find a reliable source where the name Vatica is mentioned as a goddess of the underworld or associated with death or birth. In fact, I don't see it listed in any of the Etruscan pantheon uh, that you can find online. Now, it is true the name came from the Etruscan name for the hill and adjoining area where the Vatican City now stands. So it was a physical location, but there's no evidence it was named after a god. And you know, I would say, even if it were, uh, that doesn't have any symbolic significance for the modern-day site, any more than, say, Jupiter, Florida, or Athens, Greece, might connect those cities to Jupiter or Athena. Well, we have certainly covered uh, quite a range of questions today. I hope you found it interesting and encouraging, and I hope it encourages you to send your question to The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional, next. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, and glad to have your company on this fourth segment of the broadcast where Charlie Dyer brings us an insightful devotional. Today, it has everything to do with the changing of the seasons, but I don't want to steal any of his thunder. First, though, this Holy Land experience, a powerful testimony from someone whose visit to the Holy Land now shapes their thinking along these lines. Hello, uh, my name is Gervin. I'm from Midlothian, Texas. The thing I find most significant on our tour here in Israel is standing on top of Mount Arbel. I enjoy looking to the north and seeing the coastline and walking around to all the various sites that are so historical from the Bible, from the New Testament, to know that the water is still as level as it was back then when Christ walked on it. That has not changed. it thrills me to, to look out from that mountain and see where 90% of his miracles occurred and know that that's still relevant today. My name is Jack Alexander and just have been enthralled with Israel, love the Sea of Galilee, and there's something about being here where, where it's almost like God is inviting you to his hometown and allowing you to see where he grew up and where he ministered and where he died. and. It just increased the intimacy so much and um, just appreciated the time so much. Appreciate that Holy Land experience very much. Well, here we are. For better or worse, it's fall. Some people love it. Some people say, oh, I wish summer hadn't left. I don't know where you land in all of that, but Charlie Dyer has some thoughts. Charlie, what about the fall? Fall has arrived. The days are getting shorter and a crispness is creeping into the night air. Football is in full swing, and across America, high schools and colleges are holding homecoming celebrations. The harvest season is almost over, and even the county fairs are starting to wind down. Growing up, I loved going to our local state fair, shuffling down the midway with the large crowds of people, viewing all the exhibits, livestock, games, and rides, and of course, sampling all the food. Fall gatherings are fun. Israel had its own fall gathering. And as we discussed on today's program, we're in the middle of it right now. Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is the final festival in Israel's cycle of feasts. So let's head to Jerusalem, 
in the past and in the future, to explore the Feast of Tabernacles. As we walk through the Holy Gates leading into the court of the Gentiles, we find ourselves packed into a massive throng of humanity. It seems as if the entire space from the royal portico to the separation wall around the inner court is filled with people. There's a sense of excitement, even joy, coursing through the crowd. And all the energy and enthusiasm keeps us from becoming claustrophobic. As we grow accustomed to the crowd and the noise, we realize something else the unmistakable smell of meat being grilled on an open flame. We're puzzled at first until we see the smoke rising from above the walls in the inner court. And that's when we remember all the sacrifices being offered during this festival. Over the course of seven days, the priests offered 70 bulls, 14 rams, and 98 lambs, a total of 182 animal sacrifices. Why so many sacrifices? David Brickner suggests the emphasis on seven, seven days for the feast, and multiples of seven for the sacrifices points to perfection and balance. And the 70 bulls were thought to be symbolic for the 70 other then-known nations besides Israel. The Feast of Tabernacles looked back to Israel's wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years, a time when they lived in tents, not permanent homes. The feast also pictured the completion of harvest. The harvest season was now over, and it was time to watch for the start of the winter rains and the beginning of a new cycle of planting and harvest. One tradition added to the Feast of Tabernacles was a water-drawing ceremony. Each morning of the festival, priests would draw water from the Pool of Siloam and carry it back to the temple to pour on the altar. It was done as a reminder of God's provision of water in the wilderness— and as a plea for God to bless the nation with rain. John 7 describes a scene from the life of Jesus that took place during the Feast of Sukkot. On the final day of the feast, Jesus stood in the temple and shouted, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. In doing so, Jesus gave new meaning to the pouring out of the water on the altar. But now the scene in front of us is shifting from the past to the future. The Feast of Sukkot pointed to completion. It was the seventh and final festival in the cycle of festivals given to Moses. And it was a seven-day festival held in the seventh month. And while it pointed back to God's provision in the wilderness, it also pointed forward both to the beginning of a new year and to the completion of God's cycle of redemption foreshadowed in all the Jewish festivals. Sukkot pointed toward God's final ingathering, his final harvest. At the end of the book of Zechariah, the prophet pictures the return of the Messiah to the Mount of Olives. He describes God's rescue of his people and their spiritual renewal. But that's not the end of the story. God had called Israel to be a light to the nations, and Zechariah ends his message by showing the impact Israel will have on the nations of the earth and he demonstrates it using the Feast of Sukkot. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Sukkot. Zechariah describes a time when the nations, the Goim, literally the Gentiles, will come to Jerusalem to worship God and celebrate the Feast of Sukkot. Some might see this as symbolic of heaven when all the righteous of the world gather together to worship God, but that's a bit problematic because Zechariah goes on to say, 
And it will be that whoever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain for them. It's hard to imagine someone in heaven refusing to worship God. But in the coming kingdom here on earth, there will be people still living in their normal earthly bodies, and some might choose to disobey. But as any good parent, God will provide a gentle nudge to keep them faithful. Don't miss the big picture here. The Feast of Sukkot isn't just for the Jewish people. Zechariah says in the kingdom age to come, it will be celebrated by Jews and Gentiles alike. The festival points to the fruition of God's program for the earth, a time of ingathering and blessing, a time when living water, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, is freely poured out, a time when the hatred displayed by so many toward the Jewish people will be replaced with a heartfelt love for them and for their God. Charles Dickens wrote of the spirit of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas yet to come. But today, I focused on the meaning of Sukkot in the past and of Sukkot in the future. But what about today, now, the present? What lessons can we take away from this time together? How about this? Sukkot is a reminder of God's faithfulness and of our need to be thankful. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks about the blessings God has freely bestowed and lavished on us, including forgiveness of sin, adoption into his family, the outpouring of his spirit, and the promise of a heavenly inheritance. This is a good time to pause, remember all that God has provided, and thank him for his great faithfulness. Wow, what a great reminder, and one we need. You know, it's so biblical, Charlie, for us to take time to be thankful. We're, we're busy rushing around asking God for things, but that moment of thanksgiving is, is rare for us. You know, I think that's what God intended in so many of these festivals, especially when he asked Israel to gather as a nation before him. And the final festival, Sukkot, is the one where God says, yes, now it's time to remember what I've done in the past, what I've promised in the future, let's bring it all to completion and focus on God. And that's why also there were so many sacrifices. Mm. Uh, God expects us to do that. And frankly, John, this is a good time of year for us to stop and uh, cease that rushing about and remember what God has done for us. That's a great reminder. Charlie, thank you for that. I know I'm forever rushing about. I need that reminder. Cease striving and know that he is God. Hey, we'd love to get an email from you letting us know how the program has touched your life, maybe informed you, brought you around to a different perspective, or equipped you to teach a Sunday school lesson or preach a sermon. You can email us anytime at the land and the book at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. Our Facebook administrator has loaded up the Facebook page with all kinds of fresh stories, and I know you'll appreciate your visit. Best way to get there is to head first to our website, thelandandthebook.org, and click on the Facebook icon. You'll stay connected all week long and be better informed on how you can pray for the Middle East. I'm John Geiger, thanking you for listening, thanking our team, that's Dan Anderson in the control room, and of course our host, Charlie Dyer. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.